Good evening and welcome to Editing Aloud. Thanks for joining us. In a week in which the ANC's Secretary General, Ace Mahashule, has said, show me one leader of the ANC who has not done business with government. Um, Rob Rose, isn't this pretty startling kind of way into the debate about corruption, particularly at a time when it's turned out that so much of the protective equipment which government procured was in contracts with connected individuals, including Ace's own sons. Yeah, it's staggering chutzpah. And it comes just a few days after Ramaphosa himself said, you know, that, that we mustn't be doing business, our families mustn't be doing business with the state. Um, and, and I think Ace is just, again, signaling for the signaling um, the fact that he just doesn't seem to care about what the president says. I think, it, again, it illustrates Ramaphosa's weakness, um, illustrates the cleavages within the ruling party, which which have been pretty manifest. And it also illustrates just how poorly the ANC has performed when it comes to actually managing corruption. And, you know, families of the politicians doing business with the state, I mean, you could ask where does corruption begin, but I think that's a good, pretty good place to start looking. Peter Montalto, your latest note, you've talked about rent-seeking being foundational to the ANC. Uh, that is rather a bleak picture. Can well, I think we have justify? to think back to those state capture years, right? And there was a song and a dance always, I remember, um, you know, being on the radio and talking about what was going on in the ANC, things like this. And people didn't want to talk and sort of call a spade a spade, ultimately. I think, ultimately... We have to think very carefully about what really goes on, um, particularly below a national level. Uh, and I think National Treasury, for instance, has done a pretty good job, um, even under the Zuma years, of, clean, of keeping things at bay at the national level. Uh, now in the Ramaphosa administration, the SOEs as well, um, certainly some change there. But still below the surface, particularly at provincial uh, and at municipal level, I think largely uh, things are unchanged. And that's what comes out in the AG reports. Um, but I think it's also very subtle, right? This is the style of what goes on is not necessarily, uh, you know, simple backhanders and things like that. These are inflated contracts, double invoicing, all this sort of stuff uh, that goes on. And this is what we've seen uh, come through as well in terms of PPE procurement. Um, uh, and I think we should differentiate as well slightly norm normal, uh, if you like, uh, inflation of contracts and things from simply then not delivering, uh, which also seems to have gone on. Uh, quite a lot as well uh, uh, at the municipal and uh, and uh, provincial level. Lucanio, the Secretary General said there was no law against uh, ANC family members doing business with government. Would it make much of a difference if there was? Actually, like, possibly. But I want to just like, know, like Peter's last point, you know, about, I mean, rent-seeking is not necessarily like a South African phenomenon. I mean, you go to the UK, you see the headlines there about the uh, Tories and who they get involved with. I mean, the, the, this is nature of most states. There, there isn't a state anywhere in the world that doesn't have a, an element of rent-seeking behavior by the elites. The issue here, what Peter touched on, is a lack of delivery on top of it. You know, now that's what for me, like, obviously, I mean, the blatant corruption, the blatantness of it is amazing. But, but in a way, it's not unique. I mean, you study, I mean, go like look at America, look at the governance under the Trump era, or even before that. You know, like. So like that, that's not. I mean, that's, that's part of that's that's part of the issue. Where what's what really bothers me that the fact is it's so blatant, as, as Rob says, and and the fact that Peter says like you know, there isn't even any delivery on top of that. <laughs> Peter, Peter, you spoke in your note about about what this meant about President Cyril Ramaphosa's own position and his power to 
make any change to the corruption thing. Um, is he powerless to do anything about it? So I think the key point here is the candidates on the side to raise was is the fact that you know South Africa is not unique certainly, but this falls into a much larger sentiment issue uh, and a much larger problem of dealing with the party internally, dealing with the functioning of the state, uh, and both of those things are so important for the other thing we always talk about structural reform as well, and it's that thing which I think makes South Africa a little bit more unique is is this sort of unique mix and mess basically. Uh, but ultimately, it comes back to the usual point. It's the same as structural reform. It's the deployment of political capital. Uh, and the president has to choose, uh, ultimately, and has to force a, a stronger line much earlier. Um, and I think that's where, you know, I remember there were a lot of debates straight after he came to office uh, as president at the start of 2018 of, you know, do you go from the bottom up in terms of dealing with corruption or you take out the big figures from the top down? Uh, that sort of debate has never really been fully realized in the sense of we haven't actually seen a huge amount going on. We have, of course, seen the uh, asset forfeiture unit coming to the forefront in those sorts of more civil claims, uh, but not the criminal cases where it seems the risk aversion uh, is really lying. And I think, you know, uh, business and sent for sentiment in general needs to see a number of uh, big fish taken out. And that probably starts with... Rob Rose, on, on the protective equipment specifically, the Treasury spoke last week of how initially, very early in the crisis, the private sector... Uh, Business for South Africa had volunteered a private sector portal which have, would have done the procurement. Um, would that have been an appropriate way to go? And had we gone that route, would it have prevented some of the corruption which we have in fact seen in the purchasing of protective equipment? Look, I think that if you look at things like the Solidarity Fund, they've put in place a certain governance mechanism aboard to ensure that there is oversight. So I do think that had it been run by the private sector um, with those kind of mechanisms in place, it would have been um, a better way to do it, especially considering that the way it has turned out, it's it's been, you know, a lot of the guys who just climbed in before and, and you know, had illicit dealings with the state have just climbed back in and done exactly the same thing. So it certainly would have broken that that chain of causation. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I don't think that was ever going to happen because we have a, a very statist minded government that doesn't that wants to keep control over these kind of processes and you could argue if you're a cynic that it was precisely to allow this kind of thing um i don't think that's entirely true i just think that it's that's a consequence of the of the centralist mindset um, that they wanted complete control over this um you know but the fact is it's been it's been a disaster for them um optically and in so many ways and at the same time as they're getting loads from the imf to to have the this amount of corruption coming in from from the top. I mean, as Lacanya mentioned, we've seen other other countries where we have similar issues. Mexico, I think, has had similar PPE issues. Um, it's just that, you know, <laughs> it looks pretty terrible for us at a time where we need to be showing sobriety in our dealings with um, with tenderers. It's also interesting, Rob, that you mentioned a sort of statist view on life. Whereas you think, like, with, with PPEs and things like that, it actually almost goes against that concept. The idea that why, why do you even have to have a middle person in Rob Rose like procuring the stuff if you can just mm -hmm. buy it from Jack Ma yourself or wherever. <laughs> and like, if you really want to be a state that shows itself to be in control, you think this would be one thing where you would want to take control. But obviously, like, you know, when you when you have these procurement processes, they are set up for a reason and, and the reasons are not always honorable. So they facilitate this kind of transfer of resources to certain people. Because otherwise, there isn't really any need to for, for them to exist except to inflate the price. I mean, <laughs> why can't you do I mean, I agree with you, but I do tend to think that 
often it's not so much in the design but more like the implementation in that you know it's 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 incompetence rather than designed to be corrupt and i think it's it's in the you know the the slip between cup and lip that that these things happen rather than intentionally designed to be corrupt um because i i think that you know a lot of people believe that it's designed to be like that and i think it's more a case of just basic incompetence and a basic lack of oversight like the anc i suppose like the anc peter montalto like the ANC and like the ANC when it comes to tackling the question of the economic recovery, we've seen very little um, attempt really to get us out of the economic mess. Is there something going on behind the scenes that we don't know about or is there literally nothing from government on trying to fix the economy? So there's been a lot of chatter obviously about the parallels between the B for SA and the ANC. Uh, plans on the surface there is, but speaking to you know the point uh, that Rob made about being statist, you know there is a very very different conception behind the two reports. And I think that's partly caused a lot of problems behind the scenes. That uh, fundamentally the B for SA report is asking for a private sector led solution on infrastructure uh, in terms of getting allowing the economy to sort of get back to normal or some semblance of normal. Uh, where the ANC comes with, it, with a much more central direction. Uh, and that's now, I think, gummed up the process. And what we've seen is these reports have sort of entered into the cabinet system and kind of got lost because this sort of fundamental um, sort of lack of cohesion between these two visions just makes it fall apart. And that's the problem of what happens next. Remember, this is meant to now move uh, into the uh, Nederlag Presidential Working Committee. Uh, that process was delayed, didn't happen last week. Uh, but in that, it's going to be really hard for government to come when it has no real conception itself uh, of, you know, how this recovery is meant to work and how is government then meant to negotiate with business, with labor, when it doesn't really know what it wants. And I think that's why I remain quite pessimistic. So yes, nothing has happened so far particularly, but also I, I'm quite skeptical on how much can really happen if government really doesn't know what it wants. If COVID has peaked, and Peter has COVID peaked in South Africa, um, then surely yeah. the next step is to go on to Op more opening up of the economy and more recovery. Has it peaked? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. But I think there, there is there are a lot of mixed messages on this. So there is a huge amount of risk aversion, it seems, from government around second waves, around the fact that uh, certainly Western Cape and uh, Teng seem to have peaked. Eastern Cape is peaking probably now, but other, other provinces are yet to peak. So I think this idea of a sort of wholesale opening up is sort of unlikely. We're certainly going to see some extra steps and we'll see does it come this evening, does it come maybe on Sunday uh, is more likely from the president. Um, but, you know, I think you, you, need a, you need the right uh, mindset to look forward and actually think that, you know, it takes quite a while to put in place these recovery plans uh, to have an effect for 2021 at least. Uh, and that's why they should have already been doing this from April uh, around the recovery plans and not simply trying to align it with when you're actually unlocking the economy. Lucanio, has COVID peaked? Are we on the way down yet? Oh, no, I, I, I wouldn't. I would love to think so. But then, like, like I had last day, which city now is closed down as in New Zealand. You know, a few weeks ago, we we're talking about New Zealand as like having gone past post-COVID society. And now that now you could you got new closed downs there, so it's really hard to 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 really base on that, anything on that. I mean, I I think that we we have to be thinking ahead about how to live with COVID rather than the idea that it's peaked because it could peak now, but then we could have new waves, like as Peter says. 
For example, in the UK, people are opening up now, but then there's the, they're already worrying about what's going to happen over the winter months. So you can't really be planning on this idea that this, that this, this is an episode that's going to end anytime. Yeah, I think you have to be planning about how to live with it. That's, almost assume that it's gonna, you're going to have to live with it for the next five, ten years, or whatever it is. You know, ten years, twenty years ago, people were talking about finding vaccines for HIV and malaria and stuff, and they still haven't showed up. <laughs> so, so you know, who knows? Maybe there will never be a vaccine. So I think we just have to like. We can be creative and think how we're going to live with this and how we can actually open our economy while COVID is here because it might not go away. One of the issues we've not talked about much in this program is Zimbabwe, which has really been hitting new and ever more bleak lows this week. Um, financial Mail cover story. Rob Rose, you focused on Zimbabwe for your cover, talking about how essentially the new president has turned out to be pretty much like the old. Tell us what your cover story says and what the outlook is for that very beleaguered country. Yeah, well, we spoke to quite a few people in Zimbabwe living there at the moment about the state of play in the society and just how difficult it is to survive in a country where you have, you know, inflation at 800% and you have unemployment at 90%. Um, and and a lot of it was about about you know the absence of hope. How when Mugabe left a few years ago, people thought, well, there's a time for reform and we can get Zimbabwe on the right track finally after so many wasted years. Um, and that that's I think that has given way to a realization that Mugabe is pretty much just the same same person essentially. In fact, some of the people we spoke to were saying that life is probably better under Mugabe. Um, which I don't think was entirely entirely an accurate reflection, but I think it reflects their sense of despair at where things are. Um, and you know, I mean, we've 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 seen them cracking down on protests in, in a very brutal way. That uh, you know, journalists have been arrested. One journalist who went into hiding, they 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 kidnapped his family and tortured him to find out where 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 he was. So it's it's a country that is you know, I think Mnangagwa has turned out to be you know a classic despot. Um, I, and I think that this country, South Africa, should do more to to make that clear and to and to you know say we're not going to accept that. I saw Zuelanzi Mavabi talking about how we must not accept Mnangagwa or any of his cabinet members in South Africa to be treated in any hospitals. We must make it clear that we're not going to accept that regime in any sense um, because it's the people of Zimbabwe who are suffering. But our politicians, you know, like to look after their own, as we've seen with numerous efforts to to have talks with Zimbabwe's government, as we saw this week as well. But Rob, how did it go so horribly wrong? I mean, was this the original intention, um, the people you've spoken to for your cover story? Uh, there certainly seemed to be an air of reform when Nangagwa was first elected. Was it always a hoax, as it were? Or is there something structural about the place which just creates this? Well, they haven't had a real, they haven't had proper opposition politics um, for a long time. Each time the, the, the opposition gets strong enough and is threatens to win, as it did in 2006, um, the ZANU-PF just cracks down and, and doesn't let that result happen, as we saw then. So perhaps it was 2008. But I mean, the fact is that Mnagagwa is cut from exactly the same cloth as Mugabe. Um, he doesn't, it doesn't allow any dissent. And it's it's a dictatorship. I mean, it's just... You know, it, it was never going to be a reform. I think people who expected there to be reform gave Mnangagwa too much credit. Um, they just didn't like the fact that Grace Mugabe was scheduled to take over from her husband. That's what irked 
in Nagagwa and the army at the time. So it wasn't exactly like there was ever going to be promise of much promise of, um, of, of reform. Lucanio, South Africa is currently chair of the AU. What does our approach say about that role? Our approach uh, nothing too positive, unfortunately. I mean, our policy from South African policy from Zimbabwe hasn't really changed since the days of Tabombeki and the quiet diplomacy, which has always, is, I mean, in, in, in its, it's got a fundamental flaw in, 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 on its basis, the idea that you're working with two, you're dealing with two parties of, of almost similar equal power. And what, and what you have to do is play the mediator, you know, who's neutral, who the both sides can, <laughs> can, can deal with. But it, but, it, but, but it doesn't work like that. I mean, you, you have to take sides. I mean, when, when you've got repression and, 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 what, and what Rob is describing there, you, you, you kind of have a morally neutral stance and, and, and deal as if you're dealing, you know, with, with, with two conflicting parties that are of equal, no, 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 in terms of power or influence. But even you have to take a view, or even more in terms of moral responsibility, what's happening, you have to take a side. And, and we haven't really wanted to take a side. And that's why, like previous, like so attempts have floundered. I mean, in any case, like, I mean, Mugaba would have seen how Mugabe sort of like played South Africa like very expertly all those years ago. So it, it is just going to play the same trick as well. And, and now the police is even less clear. That's, that's one of the funny things. I mean, you, I mean, you had Ace Mahashula the other day talking about repression in Zimbabwe. And yet, I don't think Linda Zulu was quoted somewhere saying we need to do something about it. Like sort of, so it sort of does get feeling to the whole idea that, that, that maybe you know, that the center here, like the president, is not really, you know, he doesn't have a grip of things. Like, you know, even when you did like, things like you, do, you sort of disagree with them, like, the fact that he like, doesn't seem to be even in control of the messaging from his own party. Like, you know, you've got this, and it, it doesn't really make you optimistic that we actually are going to have a coherent policy going forward. I mean, and then, and then you look at SADAC, you look at AU, I mean, those institutions. They've been really filled themselves with glory in terms of like uh, dealing with the conflicts. I mean, the, 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 the time when we had like a, an upsurge in, in, in democracy in, in, in the continent, and that was you not know, just during the times when of economic crisis and adjustment programs. So this, those were externally enforced. You know, it wasn't really anything like local leaders like themselves that like, sort of pushed. Yeah, and it doesn't really watch Rob. Yes, yes. But to add to Lacanio's point, I mean, you know, it's exactly that that complete apathy on South Africa's side. We sent their special invoice. We sent Baleka Mbete, Sidney Mufumadi, and Huako Ramatlodi this week. And um, Nagagwa just said, well, you can't meet the opposition leader. And they just said yes so and came home again. It was kind of bizarre, Thanks, wasn't so they came it? Home. And the reports from the meeting with Nagagwa were that, well, you know, there was nothing negative said. It was a fairly cordial meeting. I mean, that is just... It's entirely failing to deal with the issues. It's, it's, a, it's a massive, immense failure of political leadership. It is kind of a shocker. And even watching the presidency sort of announcements, the president seems to spend a lot of time on SADC and African Union issues. But I do kind of wonder what it is he's doing there and why he is spending so much time there rather than addressing our own problems at home on which what happens next? Um, the state of disaster is about to expire. Are we going to get a decision in the next couple of days about where we go from here? Do we go to another level? Do we get alcohol sales back? Do we open the borders? Lucanio, what chance of change? You know, like, 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 like as we were saying earlier, I mean, like, 
I mean, we've also lost concept of what, or, or what these levels actually mean anymore. Are we now in level three or two and a half or 2.1? So we don't actually don't know for, to start with what our starting point is. And I mean, a, a cynic might argue that, you know, this, the, the government, it might maybe go to, to level two as a, as a way to avoid all these court cases, that, it, that it, uh, all these issues it found itself in, in terms of the tobacco ban and the alcohol ban. Which, which now can no longer be justified by the science. I mean, I mean, I would be quite shocked if they won any of those cases, just purely based on the science and, and their own justification about shortages of beds. I mean, I mean, the tobacco, the, I mean, the tobacco case was never really made. Really, like, I, I think in the very, very first days, people like WHO said yes, there might be a link between smoking and COVID, but that was totally disproved. Like, or else it turned out not to be the case quite quite early in the process. So who knows? I mean, uh, it's, it's really hard to analyze because the last couple of weeks, whenever we've been talking about this, we've been talking about how all the decisions didn't seem to make sense to us in terms of the evidence. You know, like, like when you think issues like you know, the, the, the opening and closing of schools, opening of churches, full taxes, allowed to go to a casino and gamble, but not allowed to stay at home yes. and, visit and have friends visit. So, so, so these things are really hard. So it's hard to really to to, to know to to take an evidence-based analysis of it because mm -hmm. none of the decisions seem to be based on evidence. The <laughs> bottom the bottom so line surely is is let's not have, let's not expect coherence or consistency anytime soon. But perhaps something will change. And in the meantime, let's move on to some of the corporate news of the week. MTN pulling out of a lot of the Middle Eastern um, countries, which have really caused it quite a lot of trouble, and focusing on, on Africa. Um, Rob Rose, is, that a, is this a good time to do that? Um, and would it, I mean, part of MTN's kind of pitch, in a way, was going into these quite high-risk jurisdictions, that it's pulling back is interesting in itself. Yeah, I mean, I think that MTN initially wanted to make a lot more money from these countries, but as it is, I think it's 5% of their turnover, um, those Middle Eastern countries, but it's probably about 30% of their time, given all the issues you have in, you know, being used by regimes in the Middle East to spy on their citizens, and it's just reputational risk is just so huge. I think Iran is probably the place where they have um, the largest, largest profitable network, which they could probably make, you know, the theory is potentially $20 billion by selling. Um, but the other countries, you know, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, they're very small. So it just isn't worth it for MTN, um, especially given, given the hassles, the court cases, the allegations of bribery. It's just not what you need. And it's not as if the geopolitical environment's becoming any, any more, um, you know, calm and, and sensible about these things. If anything, we see the pressure from the U.S. just ratcheting up um, as we see Look, cases like NASPERS. So it's not as if this is going to get any calmer. Yeah, I wanted to come back to Naspers, but quickly, Lucanio, you argued in your editorial that, that, that focusing on Africa was a good thing, yet MTN's um, Nigerian experience has been pretty troubled as well. I mean, doing business in Africa, uh, is, that, is that a clear win? I mean, I suppose it depends how long-term your views. I mean, Nigeria does have specific issues. I think, I think everybody has had issues there from... You know, I remember one of the most outrageous stories that I that, that I got to sort of see in my newspaper when I first joined was like, no way when they had a dispute with Standard Bank, for example, when when the central bank just merely just went and took the money off their account. <laughs> I mean, when you're so, dealing in the, the, the in those kind of markets, I mean, 
as I was the, 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 the argument, like maybe like you know, some people said maybe they, they make enough money that to, 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 to make that to make to make it worthwhile. But I'm not sure whether you could make the same argument for Afghanistan or Yemen or Syria, like which I think those three markets are only like four percent of the EBITDA. So yeah. it makes when you when you look at the hassle, but, but but Nigeria is probably one of the most profitable ones they have. So if they might decide okay, that's worth it. Rob Rose, um, Nasperis, you mentioned um, some of the shine has worn off thanks to Mr. Trump. Just quickly, what is Nasperis's problem? Take us to the through the steps. Trump, WeChat. Nasperis, all of a sudden the stock exchange darling is not so darling anymore. Yeah, um, well, Donald Trump has had his issues with TikTok. He's routinely mocked on, on TikTok, so he, um, he decided he wanted to ban it. I mean, he, he, the, the, the rationale, which isn't entirely without foundation, is that, is that Chinese authorities, which own large stakes in a lot of these um, government, a lot of these entities, use it to collect data on American citizens. So that's notionally the, the idea behind banning it. Um, and he spoke last week of also banning WeChat, which is, which is one of the primary um, arms of, of Tencent, of which Nasperson owns 31%. And it's really, it's the primary reason why Nasperson process have done so well is because Tencent has been flying. I mean, even today they released new results showing that they did fantastically well. They beat, they beat all the estimates making, you know, billions of one uh, profits so it's they're still they're still good companies and and I don't know if this will hurt America more than it'll hurt Tencent because it's a American audience is tiny in terms of WeChat's um, profits but you know any Americans doing business in China need need to to be able to contact and communicate with people who are using WeChat so I think it actually does like a lot of what Trump does I think it does more harm to America than oh, good in the meantime yeah. That, but I think I think we're going to be watching Nasperis's fortunes with particular um, concern, given how much of our stock exchange it now makes up after the real run on Tencent. Uh, that is all we have time for. But please do join us again next week for another edition of Editing Aloud. And in the meantime, stay safe. <laughs>